take your Bible and turn to Ephesians 1, be in verses 7 and 8. We were there last week, we'll be there this week. We'll be there a little bit next week. (laughs) There was a time when, in this country, under uh, different circumstances from what we live in today, sin was treated harshly. Sins like adultery, divorce, child abuse, spousal abuse, these things were treated harshly. They were treated publicly. They were treated openly. Many of you, when you were growing up, I'm sure read the American lit classic, The Scarlet Letter. The story of a woman who committed adultery and then was branded by her community. Sin was treated harshly. Many of you, man and woman, but especially I'm sure some of you ladies who read that, could sympathize with a lady in a setting where she was forced to wear a scarlet letter A for all of the community to see. So that like the lepers in the Bible, those who saw her might go to the other side of the street. So that those who might befriend her and bring her into their home would have to do it at the expense of being associated with an open adulteress. There's a time when sin was treated harshly. But I pray we never go back there. I pray we never go back to that kind of system of outwardly um, punishing and making people live with the guilt of their sin. No, I pray we never. I pray we go to a place in this culture where we take sin seriously. And when they throw the adulteress at our feet, and they say, the law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? I pray that we might say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The man who uttered those words was sinless. The man who uttered those words was the only man on the face of the earth who might pick up a stone and pelt that woman until she bled to death. And then he stooped down and wrote. I don't know what he wrote. I don't even know if it's safe to guess what he wrote. I've heard lots of theories about it. The problem with that is... When you get so focused on what was he drawing in the dirt, you miss the scene. Christians, the fact we don't get what redemption is, we don't understand the grace of God, is why, unfortunately, so many of us would have thought we could throw the stones. I'm more focused not on what he's writing in the dirt but at the sound of rocks landing on the ground and quiet footsteps shuffling away. I'm more interested not in what he's writing, whether it's the law, whether it's the word redemption, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's I love you. I don't know what he was writing, but I know and I can imagine Because I felt it. That when she looked up into his eyes, she was looking into the eyes of God. And he said, 
Where are your accusers? Where are they? Neither do I. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That is redemption. He's the only one who had the right to stone her. He's also the only one in all the world who could take her adultery on himself and pay an awful price for sin. And what he was saying in that moment was, I don't accuse you, but I don't excuse you. I bear your guilt. Go free. I pray our culture, our Christian culture, becomes that culture, not the scarlet letter, not the self-righteous, but the redeemed, who then extend redemption, who then say, you know what? Your marriage has failed. You have sinned. Your spouse has sinned. You've ended in a court of law, and it's it's awful. But, by the grace which God has extended to me, I now extend that to you. You don't have to continue in that life. I pray that our culture, here Grace Fellowship, really becomes such a place of redemption That the one who has lived a life of promiscuous, open sin and rebellion might come here and not be excused and not be accused, but have the gospel extended. An open-handed extension of the love which we have received. This is why Jesus said, If you forgive not the sins of others, your Father in heaven does not forgive you. The reason he says that is because the proof of forgiveness being extended to the one forgiven is that that one now extends forgiveness. And that's the kind of culture we want here. That's the kind of not excusing, not not minimizing you know we we aren't we guilty of that one of two sins it's really the same sin it's not understanding sin and god and us we either put the scarlet letter on the person and make them sit in their guilt in time out until we think they've paid enough and who are we to say when the, there's been enough paid Or we just say, you poor pitiful thing. You can't help it. It's okay. Keep sinning. This is the same sin. It's not understanding who God is. It's not understanding what sin is. It's definitely not living out the redemption we have experienced in Christ. And so I pray we don't ever go to those two places. But rather that we walk the rope, the line of the gospel. My mind's raced this week over the Scriptures and over things that I've lived in my own life. There are some of you here who need redemption this morning. You're sitting in your sin. and, And you are hopeless. And to be honest and upfront with you, the church hasn't extended much hope to you. And so this morning we're going to talk about redemption, which is our hope in Christ. Redemption by His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're going to talk about. And some of us here have been redeemed and we don't live as if we've been redeemed. My mind raced this week and I thought about a movie. Um, It was a long time ago, 1998. I couldn't believe it has been that long. A movie very popular in our culture, Saving Private Ryan. 
That's, I, I'm not, uh, parents, this is a bloody movie, okay? This is real. I've not been in a war, but I've talked with those who have been, and some of these scenes are very graphic, very literalistic to what a soldier experiences and sees, takes in his eyes. So I'm not recommending you go home and rent this movie and show it to your family. Um, I'm not saying that. But in the movie, have you seen the movie? You've heard of the movie? Do you remember? The, the basics of the movie, it opens with an old man on the graveyard in Normandy laying down, collapsing at a grave. And his family is there. And they're comforting him. And then he begins to tell his story. How he became a husband and a father. And the way he became a husband and a father was men in the United States Army went to him, found him, and at the cost of their lives, they set him free. They in some way redeemed him. They liberated him. Because his brothers had all died. And he was the last in his line. On the bridge, the Germans coming at them, everyone being shot to pieces. You remember Tom Hanks, the captain? He's in shock. People are dying. Bombs are going off. He's sitting in that famous scene shooting at a, an explosive device trying to blow up, a bridge, blow up the bridge, blow up the tank, save whoever he could save. And the Air Force shows up. And our soldiers get there. And he's now shot and dying. And Private Ryan, the old man, the beginning, is now sitting at his captain's feet. And he pulls him close by. And into his ear, he whispers hard-to-hear words, Earn this. Earn it. At the end of the movie, the old man again is standing in front of his captain's grave. And remember what he said? Something to the effect of, I've lived my entire life and I hope it has been enough to earn this. Some of you who are redeemed, live your life trying to earn your redemption. God did not pull you close at salvation and say to you, earn this. He pulled you close and said, I have earned this. I have paid the price. You are liberated. You are victorious. You are free. You cannot earn this, is what God said. I have earned it. Live it. Big difference. Big difference in the world's idea of redemption and our Christian concept of being redeemed. It's a huge difference. And I thought about biblical pictures of redemption this week. In Hosea chapter 3. Hosea has been the father to sons that are not his sons. He's been the husband of a wife who is a prostitute. He has taken care of her. He has given her her keep. He has actually paid the price so that she might have bread and she might have wine. He actually would go to her customers, her clients, and he would give them secretly payment so that his wife wouldn't go hungry as a prostitute. 
And in chapter 3, she is so washed up, she is so used up, that she is worthless now and is standing on a slave block, naked, in utter shame. She stands in front of her whole community for sale. This is Hosea's wife, Gomer. Too many of us in the Christian culture are like, I'm afraid, their neighbors who whispered, Oh goodness, that's Gomer. Can you believe that? How embarrassing. I'm glad Hosea's not here to see this. This is awful. Too many of us are snickering at the sin or condemning the sinner... And there are very few of us who are like Hosea, who have been offended, but know they've been redeemed and say, as the auctioneer throws the price out, as the snickering crowd continues, as the judgmental comments are made, very few of us are like Hosea who steps up and says, I will pay 15 pieces of silver. A lethic of barley. I will buy my wife. I will redeem her. That's where Paul gets his word. Remember we talked about it. Redemption from the slave market. He bought Gomer out of the slave market. She was his wife. He rightfully could have went there and put a robe around her and said, she's not for sale, she's mine. But instead, he bought her again. He, she's twice bought. And he takes her immediately into his home. There's no earning it with Hosea. There's no paying for redemption. There's just, you're my wife. Come live with me. That's a picture of how God has redeemed you. It also, turn it around, is now that you're redeemed, how you should be towards your fellow man. God is teaching us throughout the Scriptures That redemption comes at a high cost to the one who's paying, and it is free to the one who is receiving. Redemption is not earned ever in the Bible. Israel, when they're brought out of Egypt, what did they do to earn it? They went to the Red Sea and wanted to go back to Egypt. They got across the Red Sea and got hungry and grumbled about their smoking pots that they sat around and ate while they made their wheat straw into bricks and made pyramids. They grumbled about water. They grumbled about how hot it was. They grumbled about the fact that there were giants in the land. They grumbled about the strong encampments of Jericho and whatever. And Ai. And all through... What did they do to earn it? They did nothing. If anything, they did everything they could to lose it. And yet God had paid the price and it was free to them. He kept His Word. He redeemed them at a high price. And he did not say, earn it, Christian. Are you sitting here this morning earning it? We're going to go to Ephesians 1, but I'm just laying some thoughts out here for you. I want you to really think through this. Are you, are you trying to earn redemption? you try to pay God back? If you are, then you are cheapening His payment and you are despising His grace. That's the way the Scriptures speak. Did you begin by the Spirit and now you will finish by the law? That's what Paul put it in Galatians. So Christian, for you, redemption was free. For Christ, it cost everything. You can't earn it. Therefore, you shouldn't be making others earn it. You should be extending it. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul brings up this idea of redemption in his long sentence his long sentence, his long prayer. Verses 3 through 14 are a prayer. Verses 15 through, through uh, 23 are a prayer. The, almost the whole first chapter is prayerful language. Paul is giving us a pattern of prayer. Paul is teaching us how we should pray, I believe. As you look at this passage, some of you would say, you know, I just don't feel like praying. <clears throat> Okay, join the crowd. There's a lot of days that I don't feel like praying. Is that wrong for the preacher to admit? I don't. 
I don't know. I just don't feel like praying. And so what do I do? Well, don't pray as an option. It's not a good one. But it's an option. And I'm afraid that's the one that we often take, isn't it? I don't feel like praying. Well, I'll just skip it today. I'll do it maybe tomorrow when I feel like it. You know, the amazing thing is, you'll go months. You'll never feel like it. You'll look around all of a sudden, be six months, be like, I ain't said a prayer really in six months. So we can't just wait on feelings to happen. What do I do? I go to a passage like Ephesians chapter 1 and see what Paul did. Paul began not to focus on the circumstance, but he focused on his God. You don't feel like praying? Okay, just get on your knees. You say, well, that's robotic and all that. No, just get in a quiet place, get on your knees and begin to pray Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 from your heart. Just begin to say those words and to unpack them and, and put meat on this outline and watch what happens to your heart as you focus on who God is and not your circumstance. And then all of a sudden you're in a, you're in a position where you get to the end of that and you, you were going to pray about this circumstance and you're like, well, this is small beans. I mean, really, God, this is nothing. Right? It's not what was overwhelming five minutes ago when I started praying now. I forget, Lord, that was a molehill. That's, that's simple things for you. You can do it. Right? So part of the function of Ephesians 1 is to teach us how to pray. It's a good model. It also teaches us great doctrine, like redemption. So we're looking at verses 7 through 8, and I want to quickly run through a lot here about redemption again. I know we talked about it last week. I want to talk about it again. We, we must understand. We must understand the meaning of our redemption. I'm sorry we don't have the worship guides. I've spoiled you, I know. And we don't have them. And Robertson was out of town, and it just didn't get done. And so... You had to take the old-fashioned way. Get out a piece of paper and write them down. The first point is we must understand the meaning of our redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? Redemption is the act of God paying the price of delivering us from the slavery of sin. That's what redemption is. God pays the price. Whatever it costs to get us out of sin, the slavery of sin, He has set us free. That's what redemption is. Verse 7. In Him, in the Beloved, in Christ, we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins. So it's God paying God the price that it cost for us to be free of sin. You say, where do you get that? who He's paying? Because that's a big question. Some, some, there's a big argument about who, who got, who received the payment. There is no passage which clearly says God received the price. But it is taught, I believe, scripturally, that God is the one who paid God for the price of redemption. Not Satan. Not humanity. Not the world. Not the world system. God paid God. Okay, so the redemption is God Paying God what it cost for you, for me, to be free of the slavery of sin. Redemption is best understood, as I said last week, looking back at the backdrop. We're not going to do it. We did it last week. Israel's redemption from Egypt. Hosea redeeming Gomer. Ruth being redeemed by Boaz. These are the pictures that are in the Old Testament. We look back there, we see it. Redemption is best understood looking at those pictures. Gomer on the slave trading block, naked before her community, and her husband says, who has a right to just take her, goes and says, I will buy her. He didn't just excuse her sin. He didn't make her wear a scarlet letter of sin. He said, I forgive it and I pay for it. It's paid for. You're free. Now come live with me. Okay? That's the picture of the Old Testament about redemption. Now, redemption is best understood against that backdrop, and we should understand it as past, present, and future. Redemption is past, it's present, and it's into the future. Because some of you are here saying, I'm redeemed, but I keep sinning. Yes. And eventually, at the end, God, as He is progressively sanctifying you, at the end He will glorify you and will redeem you fully. You will realize your redemption fully. Let me say it that way. 
Okay, you're fully redeemed, but he, you will realize it in your action, in your life, in the way you live, the place you live, the new heaven, the new earth. You will fully realize it. Let's look at this past, present, future redemption from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. If you hold your place in Ephesians 1 and go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. It's interesting all the tie-overs between Ephesians and Hebrews that I've been dealing with because some of you know this. I was actually about, I don't know, a day or two away from us going through Hebrews instead of Ephesians. If you think it takes a long time to get through Ephesians. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, talking about Christ, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. That's redeemed. The price of redemption was His own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. It's past, first of all. It's done. It's complete. It's finished. It's secured by His blood. Verse 15, Therefore, He is, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from death or from transgressions committed under the first covenant. So redemption is a past event. It happened at the cross. It was paid for. Was, the price was paid. It's present. That's really the focus of Ephesians 1.7. In Him we, what? Have the word have tells us he's talking about now. We have redemption. Not we had it. Not we will have it. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's Ephesians 1.7. He also teaches us that. Paul does in Romans. Hold your place in Ephesians and turn to Romans. Chapter 3, verse 24. He teaches it there also. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 22. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? It's a present reality. Redemption in this passage, Ephesians 1.7 and Romans 3.24. It's not just past, it's present. It's also future. The New Testament speaks into the future. Romans 8, verse 23. If you look with me at Romans 8, 23, we see that redemption is not just past, present, but it's also future. And not only the creation, but we, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now we see a little difference. The past event was the cross. The present event is our lives. The future event is redemption of our physical bodies. We haven't got there yet. That's why you still struggle against sin. It's coming. That full realization of what He has done is coming when we get our new bodies. In the new heaven, the new earth. Romans 8:23, Ephesians 1:14. Paul also teaches about future redemption. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You see that? We have an inheritance. But the Spirit is guaranteeing it until we get it in our hands, until we experience it. That's future redemption. That's coming redemption. So it's past. It's paid for at the cross. It's present. It's our lives now. We live in redemption. And it is the future. It's where we're headed. There's not ever going to be a day in the new heavens and new earth where we are unredeemed. We will all be redeemed. Redeemed, redeemed. Oh, how I love to proclaim it. That, that's the old song. You remember that? That's what we're going to proclaim for all of eternity. Is we're redeemed. We're going to be, we're going to be overwhelmed. Our conversations, I believe, in the new heaven new earth will be consumed with redemption. Amazed at redemption. So let's get started now. Let's talk about it together now. Let's don't wait for there. Let's talk about it here. One of the things that's come to my mind is I've studied here, and I'm guilty of it, so I'm not fussing at you, is that we focus on salvation all the time. We talk about salvation. I mean, that's what we say. Tell us a little about yourself. Oh, I got saved. 
right? If, you had, if you're at Sunday school. Now, if you're, you know, at the dance club, somebody asks, tell me a little about yourself. It's funny, you don't bring that one up usually. But at Sunday school, when they say, hey, just tell us about five minutes, I say, well, I got saved. When's the last time you heard somebody say, I'm redeemed? Why not? Well, because saved implies that we were helpless, I think. We were, we were helpless and we were trapped and we needed a Savior. That sounds good. Redemption brings up the picture of Gomer naked on the slave block. We're not innocent. We're not trapped. We're a prostitute. We look bad. We don't do anything. And we have no part in it. And so we don't tell people, I'm redeemed. I think that's it. I don't know. I think that's why I shy away from it sometimes. And two, people don't really get that word much, do they? You say, I'm redeemed. They're like, what? You know? They think about coupons you redeem. I mean, I don't know. You, you get the point. It's not a word we use a lot. But we should use it. It contains so much of what, who we are now. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And, and so we see and we understand our redemption. We must, secondly, understand how we have been redeemed. How have we been redeemed? What is the means? What is the means of our salvation? What does it mean? Now, what is the means? How did it happen? Redemption is only through the Beloved. If you look at verse 7, it says, In Him, that prepositional phrase is relational, and it points us back to the Beloved. The verse right before it, you see it? In verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Him, pointing back to Him. So redemption happens through Christ, through the Beloved. Redemption is not accomplished by God commanding it. It's not a divine command. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. You don't come before the bench in front of the judge, tell your charges are read out in the court, and the judge says, okay, no guilt, no punishment. Forget it. That's divine command. Divine, divine fiat, we might say. He doesn't just say, no sin. He doesn't wave a magic wand. It's not, that's not the means of our redemption. That would mean redemption is free to God and free to us. It's not free to God. It's costly to God. God doesn't just say, oh, I know you sin, but it's a, he's not mama. Like, okay, I'll just say it. Mama, granny, whatever you're called by your grandkids. You know, you break a rule at, mama, at daddy's house, daddy spanks you. You break a rule at mama's house, unless you have a certain kind of mama. <laughs> Some of you are that certain kind of mama. But you know, my mama's house, you break the rule, and what does she do? Oh, it's okay. They just had a long day. They're just tired. I'm sitting here thinking, when did tired become a condition of being able to break the rules? Right? But Mama just waves the wand. It's okay, baby. Don't worry. Go free. That's not God. He does not just say, poof. Redemption is at the cost of His Son. So when you come before Him and the charge of sinner is read, He doesn't say, it's all forgotten. He says, I paid it. Your sin is costly and I was willing to pay the price. And so we see that the means of our redemption is the sacrifice of the beloved Son. It is bought, it is purchased, it is paid for, it is costly. It is infinitely costly because it cost His blood. It cost His very life. Redemption is infinitely costly to God and it is free to us. Don't ever back, get that backwards and don't ever forget both sides of that equation. It costs God everything. It costs us nothing. That's why we love to proclaim it. That's why we love to sing about it. That's why in all the songs you've seen the last two weeks, that word has been there. It is a glorious thought that we are redeemed. Third, we've got to understand that forgiveness of sins 
is the very substance of our redemption. Some of you read verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And you read that as we have redemption and we have forgiveness. This is appositional. Big word to mean He said it one time and He said it again. Okay? Redemption is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the outcome of redemption. It's one and the same. He's not teaching two different theology, two different points of theology. It's the same point. Because you can't be redeemed, and I can't be redeemed unless forgiveness is purchased and sin is forgiven. Trespasses are forgiven. So Paul uses this phrase, forgiveness of sins, so that we it's a restatement. He's just helping us understand what redemption is. We could go on about that, but I won't. Paul also in verse seven. You might want to circle that. Isn't it odd that the word trespass is there? Try to think with me of the times that Paul uses the word trespass. You will struggle. He rarely, if ever, uses this word. This is a different part that he's bringing out. Something he wants to emphasize. Acts uses the word trespass all the time. The Old Testament talks about trespasses all the time. Paul rarely uses it. He uses, uses the word harmatia, which is to sin, which is to fall short of the glory of God. That's his classic definition of sin. Romans 3.23, to fall short of the glory of God. But in this page where he's talking about redemption, he doesn't talk about person that misses the mark. He talks about the person who is guilty of a misstep. One who has crossed, you know, it's a little bit of a word picture, but the no trespassing sign is there. When have you broken the law? When you step beyond the tree where it's posted, no trespass. You've broken the law. If they don't see you, you're still guilty of trespassing. Okay? There's those who get caught at trespassing. There's those who get away with it. But everybody who steps across the line trespasses. In this system of, of God's law, we are trespassers. We are guilty. We have stepped wrongly. We have crossed the line. We have not been able to keep the law. And he uses the word paraptama, which means to misstep. That's all it means is just misstepping. Paul is teaching us that sin is serious. The other, the other word for sin is just as serious. It's just I don't know that we grasp it very well because you think it's like Johnny who hits the ball to the fence in Little League and he runs and runs and runs the goals to get home. He gives his best effort and he falls short and everybody says, Good try, Johnny. That's not God. God's not Mama, and He's not the Little League fan. Okay? Missing the mark is serious. The standard is God. The standard is glory. The standard is Jesus. And we don't meet the standard. Okay? But this gives a little different perspective. Because now you're not giving great effort in falling short. You're intentionally stepping across the line. You know it's wrong, and you did it anyway. So Paul's bringing that out. Why would he bring that out? Because in the setting of redemption, that's what makes sense. Redemption is a legal word talking about liberating a slave or liberating one who is guilty in a court of law, setting them free. So you've got to be guilty of something. So he uses the word for trespass so that we know we're guilty of sin, misstep, offending God with our very actions. So it's not a light thing. It's costly. And Paul is teaching us about sin. Sin cannot simply be overlooked, is what Paul's saying. Sin can't be overlooked. God can't just turn a blind eye. He can't just say, well, you know, I know they messed up, but it's okay. No. God, to be God, must be just and the justifier. He must be just. He must stand and say, this is the law and you have stepped over the line. You are guilty. And then he walks around the bench as Christ and says, the guilt goes on me. How much does it cost? It's at the cost of death. I'll pay it. And the sinner is liberated, is set free. That's the picture Paul's drawing for us in Ephesians 1. Verse 7. So you're here today and you're an adulterer. I don't want you to wear a scarlet A. 
I want you to lay the scarlet A down at his feet. I want you to beg him for forgiveness of sins, of trespasses. I don't want you to try to cover over the scarlet A and dress it up and try to make it look pretty. It's sin. It's guilt-worthy. It deserves death. But what I'm saying to you is you have one who is willing for you to take the guilt, the A, and place it on him. For all of you here who don't know Christ, that's what he has done for you. He has made it possible for your sin to be forgiven. He has paid the price. So we know what it means, and we know the means that by which we receive it. We also must understand the source of our redemption. Now, Christ is the source, but He goes deeper into what the source of our forgiveness is. The source of being forgiven for sin. According to, the next phrase, according to the riches of His grace. What is the source? The treasure box of heaven. When the price for sin was read, the treasure trove of heaven was appealed to and grace was extended through Son, through His Son, Jesus Christ. What does it mean that it's according to? I mean, be careful that you don't read that out of. Let me show you the difference. The hat is passed in the pew this morning if we did that, because there was a need. And I pulled out of my pocket 50 cents. I would be giving out of my treasure, out of it, 50 cents. But I'm not giving according to, in keeping with my treasure. When I give the 50 cents, I'm giving out of it, It's gracious in some way, but it's not according to in keeping with how much I have. What I would need to do when the hat is passed is give a year's salary. That would be in keeping with. Do you see that? If I have $56.4 billion and I'm the richest man in America and we pass the hat and I give $1,000, everybody goes, gosh, that's a big gift. No, that's out of, but it's not in keeping with. That $56.4 billion guy has to give infinitely more to be giving according to. What am I saying? God did not see our sin and say, you know what, I got some leftover scraps on here, let's just give that. God said, what is the most costly thing I give? My son, I give according to the riches of my grace. I'm not going to send some angels. Hey, angel, go pay the price. No, no. That would be out of His grace. That would be out of the riches of His grace. He didn't say, you know, we paved in the streets up here with gold. Maybe if I throw some gold at it, that'll take care. No, no. God said, what is the most infinitely valuable thing we have that shows the riches that I possess? It's my son. So, son, go pay the price. He gave according to in keeping with, not out of His grace. He gave Himself. He gave Himself. He paid the price with His self, with His Son. God is given redemption in keeping with His grace. So we see the source. God is, His redemption is infinitely costly to God. Finally, we must understand that we have received the spiritual gift of redemption along with the gifts of wisdom and insight. And as we look at this passage, verse 7, we've looked at it deeply, and verse 8, we're just getting into it. But look what it says. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished. Not begrudgingly, but he poured out of abundance. He poured out in abundance upon us. 
And in your translation says, in wisdom and insight. Now, this is a struggle with that passage. I want to clear it up on my side of the fence. I'm not going to give you all the options. There's four ways you can understand this. I'm going to give you the one I think is right. And you'd be responsible to go find the other three and see if you agree with me or disagree. It's best, grammatically, theologically, if we see wisdom and insight as further gifts, additional gifts. God, what he's saying here, God gave us his son and then he gave us the wisdom and insight to see his son as the redeemer. You and I weren't smart enough to figure it out. God gave us the gifts of wisdom and insight that we might. Wisdom and understanding. Now, why would I say that? Hold your place in Ephesians and turn to Colossians 1, verse 9. I know we studied Colossians in Sunday school. Carlton did that. But look what it says. And so, this is Paul in the companion letter to Ephesians. I think these two letters traveled together. Okay? They traveled near the same time or together to the same audience or a similar one. I think they're both circular letters. All the churches in that region read them. Look at what they would have read. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and insight. So Paul is asking that they receive the knowledge of God's will. Flip back now. Hold your place in Colossians. Flip back to verse 8. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What was the wisdom and insight about, Paul? Making known to us the mystery of His will. And over in Colossians, to the church at Colossus, he says, I'm praying without ceasing since I heard of your faith that God would reveal to you His will with much wisdom and insight given to you that you might get it. You see? So I think what he's saying in Ephesians 1, verse 8, is that He lavished on us the glorious grace in keeping with His character. It was His Son. And He gave us wisdom and understanding to see His Son and understand who He is and trust in Him for salvation. So when we come before God, we can't play any games. We can't say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, but I figured it out. I got smart when I was 10, 12, 21, 71, whatever age you came to Christ. God, aren't you glad I got smart? I figured it out. No. I'll give you one more example of that right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, talking about salvation, Paul, same writer, says, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand. Unless, because they are spiritually discerned. Ah, so the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1 is presented, and Paul says, now, you audience members who don't believe this, you're not alone. Nobody in their natural state can understand it or believe it because these things are understood through the Spirit. And in Ephesians 1, he's saying he lavished on you a gift, his Son, and wisdom and understanding to see his Son as a gift of redemption. It all comes from God. What am I saying? I'm saying with this last point, That we have no point at which we can boast. We can take pride. We can stand before God with anything to hand to Him. We come naked. We come poor. We come thirsty. We come hungry. We come blind. We come lame. We come dead. But we offer nothing to God. He offers all to us through His Son. So how should we live from here forward? The application I would make to you as a lost man or woman, a person living in the guilt of your sin, 
I would offer this to you. If you have understood this, not with your mind only, but with your heart, cry out to Him. Because there is redemption in no other name but Christ's. So cry out to Him. Plead with Him that your guilt, that your sin be paid for. And I have full assurance that He will forgive you. Secondly, Christian, stop trying to earn your redemption. Stop it. You are insulting God. He has offered you His infinitely costly gift, His Son. And you have fixed a price. Ministry, loving your wife, doing good deeds. And somehow you think you'll go before Him and say, I know you did a lot for me, God, but I did all this to pay for it. I didn't, I, nobody, you know, nobody gives me a gift. I pay for everything. I make my own way. Then you'll go to hell. If you want to pay your own way, you'll go to hell. Much better, Christian, that you come before Him and say, I can't pay. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but Christ washed it white as snow. Better to go to Him and say, redeemed, redeemed. Oh, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, which I paid for with my works. Redeemed. Better to go to Him and say, I once was lost in dark of night, and you found me. Better to go and say, oh, how He loves us. And so, Christian, God has not pulled you close and said, earn it. He has pulled you close and said, I paid it. Go free. Let's pray. Father.